And uh, he's, you'll find he's that type of person. James, the book of James has been called a book of Christian proverbs, New Testament proverbs. It sort of reminds you of reading the book of the Proverbs. You'll find James just sort of uh, puts some truths. He'll change sometime from one truth to another, right, at the, in the changing of a verse. And when we understand what James is talking about, this book will open to our hearts. Let's begin in verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greeting. My brethren, now that's a favorite term, he uses the word brethren 17 times in five chapters. He's talking to the family of God. He's not writing to lost people. And uh, only the people of God, saved people, can learn the lesson James is talking about and then apply it to their lives. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. What a statement. That's contrary to our uh, common thinking. He's simply saying the word for temptation is trials, tests, hard places, difficult times. Knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have her perfect work. He's saying don't, don't run from the hard place. Don't try to connive and finagle your way out to get away from it. He said, let, just let, let the patience go ahead and do what it's intended to do. Let patience have her perfect work, that you may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. Of the book of James tonight, that's good singing. We praise the Lord for his presence. James chapter 1, and we're going to be thinking tonight on the subject, how to pass the test of life. How to pass the test of life. Life is made up of a series of tests and trials and hard places. Job said, man that's born to woman is few days and full of trouble. Job, speaking of the subject of trouble, said, as sparks fly upward, so trouble comes. You build a fire tonight, and you'll notice that the sparks still fly upward, so to the human family, trouble still is a common experience. It still comes in the lives of all people. And James is going to tell us how we can pass these times of trial and these tests that come in our lives. I heard of a young man who was a college student, and it was test time, and he'd flunked the test, and uh, he got a zero. Well, he went to the professor and told the professor that he didn't think he deserved that zero, and the professor said, well, I didn't either, but that's the lowest I had, and so <laughs> uh, I trust that you'll not fail the test of life and get a zero. James tells us there is a way that you can make an A. You can make an A+. Plus. And uh, I repeat something I said a moment ago. I like James. He, he doesn't camouflage and uh, cover up anything. James just sort of, he's practical James. And he just sort of, if you please, he just sort of calls it like it really is. And James is going to talk about the realities of life. He's not trying to evade or escape or cover up or so on. James just sort of gets right where we live. And uh, the theme of James, I was a preacher a while before I really come to understand uh, the theme of the entire book of James. And the theme is spiritual maturity. James tells us uh, we're not just to grow old, but we're to grow up. And uh, James is talking about uh, uh, some marks of a mature person. I want to give them tonight, and then we'll look at these verses. He really, in each chapter, he'll give us a mark of a, a person that's maturing. You see the idea in verse number, number four. It says, let patience have her perfect work, that you may be perfect. Now, that word perfect there, he's not talking about sinless perfect. You and I will not be sinless until we get our new body. The word perfect there that's used a number of times in James's book, it means mature. 
developed, complete. And James is saying that there is a, a way that the believer can become a mature believer, spiritually mature. They don't ha do not have to remain a baby all of our lives. And so James tells us how we can arrive to that desired position that God has for us. Let me just from each chapter tonight, you may want to put them down, and uh, then we'll come back and bring a message from the first four verses. But James gives us five marks of a mature person. We can sort of take inventory tonight and just sort of uh, give ourselves this test to see where we stand, see if we're maturing, see if we're growing up, seeing if we're becoming, as he put it here, perfect and entire, wanting nothing. Chapter 1, he says the mature person is patient in testing. Patient in testing. That is, when he hits a hard place, he doesn't uh, go to pieces. He doesn't uh, fret and he doesn't act like a small child if a person is mature spiritually. He's talking about when that trial comes that we're going to look at in a moment, James just simply says he's patient in that time of testing. Now, Patience is the one thing, basically, that distinguishes between a child and an adult. Uh, you never see a small child with patience. Uh, some of you are smiling. Some of you, I mean, small children don't have patience, amen? Uh, I've never seen a small child with patience. And so James is going to tell us in this first chapter that that first mark of that mature person spiritually is that they can be patient in testing. When your faith is tested, when you hit a hard place, you don't go to pieces, you don't get upset, you don't make everybody else upset, that mature person can just sort of go right on through those hard places, go through those difficult times. Patience. I recall we, were, we lived here in the uh, city of Greenfield back in the early 70s, uh, we were on our way to West Virginia. I was going there to preach. I was making it a few days of vacation. The family was with us. Uh, Becky was, what, about three years of age at that time, maybe between two and three. And we left and went out here and took off and headed toward West Virginia. And uh, we were now the county. Becky in the back seat. She said, Daddy, are we about there? <laughs> uh, I said, Becky, we got, we got a long ways to go. She said, I don't know what I'm going to make it or not. <laughs> I said, stay in the back seat. It's going the same place we are, amen? <laughs> just, I mean, just be patient. But uh, you expect that out of a two-year-old. You expect that out of a three-year-old. And James is going to tell us, as we study this book, each chapter we'll begin to focus in on these marks, and he'll let us just take inventory and give ourselves this examination and to see if we can pass the test he's going to give us. And the first test is, he says, the mark of a mature person, that person is patient in testing. And then you come to chapter 2, he changes his theme some, and he tells us there as we study and begin to see what he's talking about in this second chapter, basically, he says a mature person practices the truth. They won't try to excuse it, run from it. They just don't just talk about the truth, they practice the truth. Chapter 2 will give us that... Uh, that truth, basically, James is just going to tell us if it's real faith, there's some works, there's a life that backs up a profession. Man, just say that he has faith and his life doesn't back it up. James is going to tell us that's dead faith, and dead faith can't save anyone. And a lot of people that says they have faith in Christ, James is just going to get right down where we live and say, okay, find out if you're really saved or not. He says that mature person practices the truth. Chinese Christian visited our country some years ago and he made a remark and after getting back to his city and his country and he says he found a lot of uh, American believers, a lot of American Christians, he said they just had religion from neck up. Someone asked him what he meant by that. He said, well, the one, some that I met had a whole lot of talky-talky-talky but not, not much walky-walky-walky. Well, uh, uh, I think he says, instead of just having a lot of talking, we ought to have some walkie with it, amen? We ought to practice the truth. And James is going to tell us, somebody come to your door and they're, 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 they're naked and cold and you just talk a little something to them and say, bless you, be running along, but you did nothing. He said, that doesn't warm anyone. 
James says if this thing is real, he says that mature person doesn't just talk a whole lot of religion, but James says they practice it. So the first mark tonight of a mature person, he tells us he's patient in testing. He practices the truth. Then when you come to chapter 3, James says that that mature person has power over the tongue. That's the chapter about the tongue. Just about the whole chapter talks about the human tongue. Talks about the destructive power of this tongue. Talks about the, the delightful power the tongue can be, how it can bless other people. But James is saying if that person grows up, that person can control their tongue. Now, there are people have you to believe that if you're spiritual, you, uh, you speak in tongues. But James is going to tell us when we get to the third chapter that if you're a mature person spiritually, you can control the tongue. So that's uh, an entire message. I preached here one uh, Sunday evening when I went through this book before in another pastorate, and I entitled the message, and I told him that Sunday morning that I'd be preaching that evening, and I entitled the sermon, The Meanest Member in Our Church. That got their attention. And I said, we're going to find out. And that night I got up and I said, do you want to look around? <laughs> you want to you cast a vote who you think the meanest member in the church is? And uh, James says it's a little member. But said he can do a lot of damage. It's the tongue. And James gives us such revealing truths about the human tongue and the destructive power. But he says a spiritual person not only is patient in testing and practices the truth, but he says a spiritual person has power over his tongue. Now, children can't, can't control the tongue. They say quick, hurtful, hasty words. Often children will say something just so pointed and uh, something that ought not have been said. Sometimes you'll hear people, and not just small children either, you'll hear people... And uh, one person said in my presence one day, and I'm not being smart when I said this, but a person said, I just say what I think. <laughs> well, that's dumb, amen? <laughs> you let me put it that way. As Brother Fred Volt said one time, that's dumb, dumb, uh, to say what you think. And uh, I'm thinking of Fred. I got a letter from him today. He told me that he hoped I'd repent and come back and preach for him at the camp meeting. And uh, uh, I think I'm going to do it this next year. But uh, uh, he tells us here that uh, immature people can't control their tongue. They'll fly off the handle. And you know what's wrong with a person sometimes when they're quick to tell somebody off? James says they're not very spiritual. James says spiritually they're babies. Spiritually they're, they're immature. They're still infants and, and, and they just say quick, hateful sometimes, and hurtful things, but not a mature person. He says, sort of take a checkup and let's see where we stand. Not only does, is he patient in testing, chapter 1, and he practices the truth, chapter 2. He has power over the tongue, chapter 3. But chapter 4, he's getting real practical now. He tells us a mature person is a peacemaker and not a troublemaker. A peacemaker and not a troublemaker. One of the Beatitudes, blessed are the peacemakers. For they shall be called the children of God. Now, he was talking to people that already were children of God. But if they're troublemakers, no one would ever suspect they are. And so our Lord gave one of the Beatitudes and said, Blessed are the peacemakers. That is, people that instead of sowing discord, instead of putting a little fuel on the flame of contention and stirring up something and passing along words that's going to inflame content, a person that's mature will just refrain from passing on information like that. And instead of them being someone that tries to, I repeat, to be a troublemaker, you'll find a mature person, according to James's estimation, they'll be peacemakers instead of troublemakers. And then he tells us the fifth mark of a mature person, chapter 5. He tells us they're prayerful in trouble. Now, we've already learned that they're patient in testing, chapter 1. Practices the truth, chapter 2. Has power over the tongue, chapter 3. A peacemaker, not a troublemaker, chapter 4. 
But chapter 5, he deals with at least four types of trouble. He talks about financial troubles. He talks about physical trouble. He talks about national trouble. He talks about church problems, church trouble. And that's one of the greatest chapters when it comes to prayer. And he gives us a great discourse. He uses Elijah's example about the power of prayer, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. And couched in with that, with that truth, he tells us that that person that's mature can be prayerful in trouble. With that in mind, let's look at the first few verses tonight. We'll not try to go very far in the book of James tonight. We'll just sort of introduce it by picking out these verses, and from time to time we'll be returning. Uh, I'm not sure that we'll do this every Thursday night, but sometimes on Sunday evening uh, we'll come to the book of James as the Lord leads, but we'll, we'll go through the entire five chapters before we uh, conclude this series. We'll look at all of the verses related together. James, a servant of God, and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, chapter 1 and verse 1. And then he says, greeting. And really the word greeting there is the word rejoice. Now, we would have to really see the picture to understand what James is saying. You see, James is the first book that was written in the New Testament. And basically the church at this time, James is writing, is made up of Jewish believers. That's why he uses the term 12 tribes. You see, they were people one to Jesus Christ out of the tribes of Israel. He's not talking to the Jews as a nation here. He's talking to brethren. He's talking to saved people. Later, after James is writing, there was a great revival among the Gentile people. And later, John wrote seven letters to those churches in Asia Minor. Many, many then of that area of the Gentiles came in. But I repeat, here's James writing basically to the, the scattered Christians, and, and they were suffering awful persecution at this time. And so James is going to send them a greeting. James is going to send them a letter. And James is going to admonish them to rejoice. Now, keep in mind who James was. James was our Lord's half-brother. And James was not really a believer in the Lord Jesus of who he was till after Jesus' death and resurrection. They didn't really believe Jesus to be the Son of God. You recall one time his brethren came where he was at, and uh, they, they said they went away and said he's beside himself. They didn't really trust who he was till after the resurrection, and the Bible said he appeared to James, to this brother, half-brother, and James became a mighty apostle, one of the early church leaders, one of the most influential men of New Testament days, Historians tell us that his nickname was Camel Knee James. He prayed so much that his knees became callous like a camel's knees. And uh, you, can, you can reach back in church history, and you'll find the early church fathers, as they're called, they, they call him commonly by this nickname, Camel Knee James. They said he lived his life all time in prayer after he was thoroughly convinced that Jesus Christ whom he grew up with in a home there, was really the Son of God, the Messiah of Israel. Of course, then he believed and became this mighty apostle of Jesus Christ. But note the title he gives himself. I don't know about you, but I think I perhaps would have been tempted somewhere through my letter, somewhere through these five chapters of this book, I think I'd have been tempted to have told it somewhere that he is my half-brother. <laughs> but not James. James, the humble servant he was, he just says, he's a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Word servant there is bond slave. One who was thoroughly, completely dedicated to another. And he sends them greeting. And the first four verses, he's going to talk about their hard, hard places they were facing, their difficult times, their suffering, their testing, the trials. And he's going to talk about that, so let me just give you about four words that uh, will identify these three verses we trust to us tonight. I want to talk about first the fact of temptation. When I mean say temptation, I'm talking about in the sense he's using it here, not necessarily when we're tempted to do wrong, 
The Bible will use that word that way. Even James will use it down in verse 13. It says, let no man say when he's tempted, I'm tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. Now the word there in verse 13 is used in the sense of solicitation to do wrong. When someone is being encouraged or enticed to do wrong. And that's a different subject he'll look at when we get there. And James is saying when you feel pulled to commit sin, don't ever blame your sin on God because God never tempts man and God cannot be tempted to do wrong. But the word temptation in verse 2 does not mean a solicitation to do evil or an encouragement to do wrong. The word there is trial, a test, a hard place. So keep that in mind as we talk about the fact of temptation, the fact of trials, the fact of hard places. And you'll note that verse as he says, My brethren, count it all joy when. You may want to just circle that word. Sometimes with a key thought, I like to mark it, circle it, or put a one beside of it. It didn't say if. It didn't say if you fall into these diverse trials or temptations. He just says when. James is telling us that these trials are a fact of life. I, re I re repeat uh, something I said earlier. James, or I quoted Job. Job says, man that's born to woman's few days and full of trouble. And you see, when we got saved, that did not exempt us from trouble. I mean, that did not, uh, God didn't say, now since you've become my child, you'll never have to go through a hard place. We know better than that tonight. I mean, hard places trials, temptations in the sense I'm saying here, and, and suffering comes to all people alike, saved and unsaved. The human family is called upon to suffer. But James says to believers, now this is strange, he says you're to rejoice when you fall into these diverse temptations. The fact of temptation, they come to all people. Trials and rejection, hard places, persecution, everybody alike is faced with these things. Not only the fact of it, but I want us now to look at the forms of these trials. Look at the word diverse, if you please. When you fall into diverse temptations, the word diverse there suggests that they can come in different ways and different forms. And they do. Sometimes the trial and temptation is physical. Sometimes it's a financial reversal. Sometimes it's, well, we could go on and on and on talking about the way the human family is tested and called upon to go through hard places in life. The forms of these trials and temptations, the fact is they come to all people, and the forms, he says, they're divers. Then there's a third word that in the same verse. Look at the word fall. James tells us, count it all joy when... That's the fact of these trials. The diverse temptations means the forms, different forms. Your trial may not be just like the other person is being tried. You may be in good health tonight, but there may be a member of your family that's broken your heart. I know people tonight do not have financial reversement. I know people who do not have any physical problems, but there's a family problem tonight is just crushing them, and they can't for their life understand why the family problem is like it is. And yet they love God. They're God's child. And so keep in mind these trials, the fact of them, the forms of them, but then the force of them. Look at the word fall. That same word in the Greek language is used when our Lord told about the man going from Jerusalem down to Jericho and said he fell among thieves. It's the same Greek word that's translated fall right here. And the idea is that a person just walking along and suddenly, unexpectedly, he hadn't planned it, suddenly there was a thief in that Jericho Road. Jesus pictured something they understood, and that was a common thing on the Jericho Road from Jerusalem to Jericho. The thieves would hide there and prey upon those that passed by, but it came suddenly, swiftly like that. James is writing to believers and saying, sometimes that trials come so forcefully, it comes so unexpectedly, and it's just like that thief that seized that man on the Jericho Road just suddenly like that. I was called to a home last week. I went to the home, and 
the grandmother, they, they attend here on Sunday evening, son. She asked me to come, said her son, daughter would be there by the time I got there. And some of you heard me mention it last weekend. I got there just minutes after they did. And uh, she said something like this. The mother, uh, the granddaughter, which was the mother of the little baby, that when she wanted to pick her baby up and it was cold and death, crib death, ten-week-old baby. I mean, she had uh, held him a little while ago and cared for him and loved him and, and fed the, the, the little fellow. Then she goes back to touch him and a little fellow already cold and dead. And she said something like this, Preacher, I can't believe that happened. Suddenly, unexpectedly, a trial like they had never called up on the face before in their life. You don't know what the next phone call to bring to your home. You don't know what the next person. I was with a person some time ago, and when the news was broke that one of their children was found dead. And, uh, I mean, that came so suddenly. Came with such force. And James is saying sometimes these trials in life, it's not something that they, they, they actually call and, and they, they give you a warning. He says that word fall indicates that they can come with such such force suddenly in our life. The fact of these trials, he says, when the forms of them, divers there, he talks about different types of trial. And then the word fall is the force of these trials. And then look at verse 3, if you would, please. James says this to us, knowing this. Now, he's not talking to people that's in the dark. He's not talking to people who has to guess and wonder and ponder and speculate about what's, what's happening. He says, knowing this, that the trying of your faith, now that's, that's what the test is all about. It's a test of faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Faith is that thing that we do business with God. If you let me put it that way, faith is just believe in God, but God permits faith to be tested. Now, Peter says, don't think it a strange thing when you're called upon to be tested and go through that fiery trial, he called it. And of course, the picture he's using is, and in another place, Peter tells us that the trying of our faith, he says it's like gold that's being put in the fire and being refined and being tested. You see, when the miner comes with his ore, he's not sure what he has. He's not sure if it's the real thing. And then when he goes and, and he goes to the sailor, and then they put that ore in the fire. And if that miner has real gold, if it's the pure thing, you know what that fire does for it? That fire does not injure that gold. That fire takes the dross off and the impurities and makes the gold more precious. You know what God is saying when he lets a hard place come in our life? You know what he first wants you and me to know? Whether or not we're real. Do you know if you make a profession tonight, regardless of what it is, he'll permit your profession to be tested? Now, he knows whether it's real or not, but he wants you and me to know ourselves. You remember when Jesus said the word was sown and, and it was a picture of a farmer taking the seed and pitching the word? Some fell on this kind of soil, some on that soil, some on the other soil. And then he said he pictured the one that fell on the soil and it, it sprang up immediately, but said uh, then because of persecution... Persecution because of the word. He pictured a person when he hit a hard place, he just quit. He had nothing else to do with his faith. He gave up church. He gave up serving God. You know what the picture of that person was? A person that made a profession, but the faith was not real. You see, if you're real, you know what your faith will become? It'll become more precious. Just like gold that's put there in the fire. And I repeat, that miner, when he goes to the assayer, he's not sure what he has. But when he leaves after the, the, the gold has been in the fire, he doesn't go away wondering whether he's got real gold. He knows he's got real gold. If you've been saved in a length of time, everyone in this building can recall some type of test, some type of, of trouble, some type of opposition, some kind of hard place that you were called upon to go through, instead of just panicking and throwing in the towel and quitting God and quitting the church, you know what happened? He became more precious to you. He became more real in your life. You know why? You have the real thing, if you please. 
I was pulling out books that I have, checking out some words and, and a number of the ones on James. And I, I pulled out one I'd forgotten that I even had. I'd purchased 12, 15 years ago. And the writer of that book has a, has a, a unique title, a very interesting title. And, and the writer says that James is dealing with reality. I'll agree with that. And you know what the, the title of this writer's book is? says, will the, will the real phony please stand up? Well, that's what James is saying. I'm going to show who the phonies are. James is saying, I'm going to, when we get through, he said, we can find out if, if what we have is real. Well, James says, knowing this, verse 3. Now, he's writing to people. He's been with God a while. He's writing with people that has been through these trials. And God is sending the letter to them and, of course, to us also. And so that's the facing of these trials. How do you do it? James just said, well, there's some things you ought to have some, some, some assurance of. And you ought to know that this trial is for your good. And so that's the fourth and, or the fifth and the final word I want to use tonight. And we'll look at just uh, briefly here these verses again. And that's the word fruits of these trials. We've looked at the fact of trial. We've looked at the forms of trial. We've looked at the force of trial. The facing of these trials, we need to know uh, what fire is to go, these hard places is to our faith. That'll help you face it. But then what's it all about? Why does God permit it? Now listen carefully. Some of you recall the other Sunday, certainly God doesn't cause them. But even though God doesn't cause everything to happen, God permits things to happen in our life. And did you know God can take something the devil intends to ruin you with and wreck you with? Did you know God, because of who he is, can take that and build something into your life that will bring glory to God and make you a better Christian? We'll find out sometime, a little bit later in this study that the devil at times, his intent was to destroy... And yet James is saying there's a way we can yield even when the devil sets a trap. There's a way that we can learn from it and profit and become a better Christian. Now under the fruits of these temptations, these trials, these hard places, I want, us to, I want you to, if you would tonight, look with me in verse 2 and then verses 3 and 4. There's four words that will describe these four fruits that God wants to put in our life. And I mean by that when I say fruit, the results of these trials that he permits to come our way. Now, let me, let me just say this, lest someone misunderstand me. I don't think James is saying that we're to rejoice in the trial itself. I don't think that's being sensible. You go to the doctor and the doctor tells you you have cancer and you start rejoicing. I, I don't know many people do that. Uh, the telephone call comes and a, and, and a, and a Christian man is, is informed that his son... They found his son uh, in death. Uh, and uh, and uh, I don't think God is saying he's supposed to jump up and down rejoice. That's not what James is talking about. So stay with me. I was thinking this afternoon about some of the trials and some of the early trials. And David touched upon it. I guess the earliest trial that comes in the human family comes really at a very young age. David said he behaved himself talking to God through a hard place he went through. And David said, I've behaved myself like a weaned child. Now, he didn't say a weaning child. <laughs> a weaning child is rather fretful, amen? But a child that's weaned is a child that's past that fretful stage and, uh, and uh, is, is content. And David said to God in a prayer in the Psalms, after coming through a real heartbreak experience, he said, God, I have behaved myself as a weaned child, David was saying, God, and, and he went ahead and talked about his grace. You've given me grace. I guess that's one of the first and one of the hardest experiences of a child. Now, most time the children at the weaning stage can't, t you know, they can't just tell us what they're going through. But I suppose those little fellows could, could tell us what, uh, what they were thinking. They'd probably, they'd probably say, Mom's cruel. <laughs> She's taking my food away. Why, I need that bottle. But you see, mom knows better than that little, I'm not going to say how old. I've seen some a little bit older than others with a bottle, amen. But uh, a pacifier, do you ever go have to go through that? We did with one of ours. And he lost it at three in the morning. 
They're not here tonight, so it worked, but when you see him, don't tell him I was telling on him. And believe it or not, he's the first. I had to go, I had to go buy a pacifier in the middle of the night. I found a drugstore. I found Hook's drugstore open way out on the east side off of Highway 100. We lived in the Eastgate area. I went way back up there and found a, a drugstore at 3.30 in the morning. And I walked in. The lady said, can I help you? I said, well, I'll look around a minute. I, I wasn't, because it's two or three other. I wasn't going to tell them I was looking for a pacifier. I was going to get me something else, you know. And I looked and I looked and I couldn't. And finally I said to her, I said, listen, you know what, I, you know what I'm out here looking for tonight? You can tell I'm sleepy. I said, I'm looking for a pacifier. She laughed. She said, you're not alone. You, she said, you'd be surprised how many people come in the middle of the night hunting a pacifier. Well, that was a trial to take that thing away from a little one. But you see, parents know better. Well, they know they're not, uh, you know, you're not going to keep a bottle all your life. I trust, I mean, here's a grown man still in a bottle. But spiritually, sometimes, there's some been saved long enough. I mean, they ought to be eating strong meat. And somebody has to burp them all the time. And there's pacifiers and bar. One pastor said, I can't build a church and, and build soul winners and have a, a, an outreach in church because of so many babies in my church. Well, uh, when a baby is a baby, we expect them to be a baby. But afterwards, you see, there's nothing more beautiful, more cute than a small little baby. But I had a funeral some time ago, it's been a while ago now, of an eight-year-old. It's still off from it, you would have thought it was an infant baby. Lived eight years, never ever spoke a word, never ever said mommy, never ever said daddy, never ever recognized a thing, not even its bottle. And for eight years, that family tenderly cared for that little infant. On the way to the cemetery, I was riding the coach and I said to the undertaker whom I knew, I said, that's, that's pitiful. That brings tears to your eyes to see one who lived eight years, never grew any, never developed any. You know what God seemed to say to me, and I said it to that Christian undertaker that I was riding with. I said, you know what God seemed to impress me as I said that to you? God seemed to say, I look down in the churches across the land, and I see babies older than eight years old. I see spiritual babies that some of them have been saved a long time but they just won't grow up. Babies are easily offended. Babies have to have their way. Babies are quick to pout. Babies hold grudges. I mean, there's just so many marks, and James is going to tell us, James is saying to us, don't just grow old. He says, grow up. Become mature. Become useful. Become that child of God that God can use. Now, why does he let these hard places come? Well, look at verse 2. I want to give you four words, and you have the message. I'm not another sermon. Just four more words. And I'm going to tell you how long it's going to take me on each one of them, but just, just four words. Now, look what he says. Now, I wanted to say what I did so you wouldn't misunderstand me. He says, count it all joy. So the first fruit that God intends for these trials to produce in us, the first result, he says, I let them come your way for your enjoyment. That's the first word. Your enjoyment. Now, I've already tried to make clear that I don't think James is saying, in other places I believe we could back it up, James is not saying that in the, in the hard place itself for you to rejoice, because look at the word count. The word they tell us, the root word, is the, it's really the word consider, and it means to think forward. You, you recall Jesus, it kindly, the writer of Hebrews tells us this same thing. When Jesus died on the cross, Hebrews 12 says, he despised the shame. He endured the cross. He didn't enjoy the cross. He endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. You see, he was looking beyond the cross, and he knew because of that hard place on the cross, he's going to see a day when you and I could become believers and be saved, and he rejoiced in what that hard place was going to produce. You know what James is telling you and me if you're in the will of God tonight? This is a bold statement, but listen carefully. There's not anything can ever touch your life without God permitting it. It'll be for God's glory, and it'll be for your good. Within itself, it may break your heart. Within itself, it may shatter you. It may floor you, and it may look like your dreams has been shattered, and you've hit dead end street. But if you're in God's will tonight, as we learned in Romans 8:28, and if you love God tonight, A W L, all things works together for your good.
Now, not individually, as we point out that night. Sometimes individual experiences can shatter you and break you and cause much pain in your life. But James is saying God's got a way, and so it's for your enjoyment. Even though you don't enjoy the trial itself, it's going to produce something. Now, we'll see it. Look, look at the next thing. Look at verse number, number three. The first word that identifies the fruits of this trial, what he wants to put in her life, is our enjoyment. I was thinking this afternoon, let me digress to say this. You know, who, you know who some of the happiest preachers that I know that I've ever met, most joy-filled preachers I know? I'm thinking of three men right now. And, and as I think of their names, I've never been in their presence without them lifting me up. I've never heard negative word out of two of them. Always positive. You say, oh, I bet they've lived in the sunshine. Those two that I'm thinking of foremost right now has had more trouble than two preachers I know of in my life. The Bible says another place, weeping may endure for a night, but joy cometh in the morning. You see the reason? And, and, and this one preacher, I said to him, I drove by to pray with him at a time when there was enough on him to kill 12 men. I said, where is he at? And they have a pr the prayer chapel out behind the large auditorium. They said, he's at the prayer chapel. And I went over there. I didn't find somebody complaining. I found someone praising the Lord, filled with joy, heaven's presence all over his face, and he just rejoiced, and, and he'd already met God in prayer. And when I, when, when I, he put his arms around me and said, God bless you, preacher. I appreciate you. Let me tell you how good God is. And from the human standpoint, he had enough on him to kill 12 men. It was the Apostle Paul. You know, the, my favorite book in the whole Bible is the little four-chapter of Philippians. And we'll go through that one these days, too. And it's one of me, one of the sweetest books. Now, you know what the theme of Philippians is? It's joy. And he concludes by saying, rejoice in the Lord. And again, I say, rejoice. And did you know at that time he was denied everything that we think you have to have to be happy? Had no freedom? He had no friends. His future from human standpoint was bleak. He's in a prison. And he died from that prison. That was among his last letters. And yet he said, I've learned in whatsoever state I'm in, therewith to be content. That word content there means, it means uh, an inner sufficiency. It just means that whatever he needed to be happy, he had it on the inside. And yet he wrote a joy-filled book from a prison. Because he had learned, and I guess when you read the Bible, I don't know if anyone suffered any more than Paul unless it was Job. And yet, the Apostle Paul, so full of joy. Well, he said it's for your enjoyment, but look at verse 3. He said this trial is not only for our enjoyment, but he says, knowing this, the trying of your faith worketh patience. Now, the word patience also is used in a interchangeably in the Bible. It doesn't mean sometimes when we say, Lord, help me to be patient with the children or help me, Lord, to give me patience to thread this needle. Not patience ordinary in that sense. The word means endurance. It means just bearing up under. It means not, to, it's opposite of throwing in the towel. It's opposite of quitting. Just keeping on in the fight of faith. And you know what puts that in a person? It's that hard place. You don't know of a person tonight that's got endurance quality in their life unless they've been through some hard places. If you pray tonight and say, Oh, God, make me a soul winner. Oh, God, make me a Bible student. God, make me a better Christian. You just welch to get ready. You know what he's going to do? You know God's method of making you a better Christian? Letting you go through some hard places? You don't take a soldier off of the street out here, a young lad, and take him, put him on the front line. He's got boot camp. I mean, the boot camp's not to hurt him. The boot camp is to reveal what he's made out of. And if he can't take it in boot camp, I promise you, he'll peel potatoes or do something. They won't put him on the front line. He could endanger other people if he's a sissy, if he's a coward, if he can't endure the hardship. They won't put a fellow on the front line. And God says, okay, you want to be used? I want you to know what you're made out of. And he starts letting your faith be tested. 
Now, if you fail the test, you're going to have a miserable life. It don't mean you lose your salvation. You don't lose your salvation. It just means then you'll flounder around and you'll never be what God wants you to be. You'll never have this enjoyment. You'll never have this endurement quality. You won't have some, some real stability in your life. If, if, you see, if, if that hard place comes and you say, Why me, Lord? And you want to back away from it, watch it. You may, God may let you back away. He doesn't force us into those hard places necessarily. They'll come, but you see, it's our, our response to them that actually lets us know whether the fruit of that trial is going to be productive in our life. Your enjoyment, your endurance, he is saying, let this, he said, the trine of your faith worketh patience. You've all heard about the young preacher asking the older preacher to pray for him. And he said, what is it you need? He said, I need patience. He said, I have no patience. And he said, would you ask God to give me patience? And he said, let's just pray now. And the older man of God started praying and said, now, Lord, here's our young brother, and he needs patience. And said, now, would you let this trouble come? And would you let that difficulty come? And would you let this happen? And the young man tapped him on the shoulder and said that, Pastor, you misunderstood. It's not trouble that I need. It's patience that I need. And he said, knowing this, the trine of your faith, worketh patience. And Paul picks it up in his Roman letter, and he says that patience, it works faith, and then that, 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 that uh, or rather that, uh, that trial works patience, and patience experience, and experience hope that we need not to be ashamed. What's the fruit of this hard place, this trial? James says it's for your enjoyment, verse 2. It's for your endurance, verse number 3. I repeat, the people today that's getting the job done are people that's been willing to bear a load through the hard places. I heard that truth illustrated. He said there was a fellow had an old grandfather's clock. That old clock had stood out there in the hallway. Been there many years. That old big weight on that clock and that big old weight just swinging back and forth. And he got to feeling sorry for the old clock. And he went over and attempted to take the weight off of the clock. The old clock said, don't do that. Don't take this load off of me. said, you see, it's the weight that keeps me going. If you take it off, I'll have to stop. And did you know today, if we never had hard places, some of us wouldn't amount to that much serving God because it's through some trials and some hard places that we test our faith and we learn to pray and we'll walk with God. And so if you pray and try to get out from the burden sometime, that burden is the thing God's going to use to keep you going and make you the servant of God He wants you to be. He says it's for our enjoyment. He says it's for our endurance. And then in, look what he says. He says it's for our enlargement. And I mean for that use in the word. He says in verse 4, Let patience have her perfect work, that you may be perfect. There's the word. And entire. The word perfect again. It's not talking about being sinless. It's talking about being complete. Someone says that's a perfect rose. Well, they don't mean it's a sinless rose. They just mean it's a complete rose. Someone said that's a perfect baby. They don't mean it's a sinless baby. They just mean it's a complete baby. And so when James says these things is for our enlargement, he's saying it, it will produce in us that perfection, he calls it. It means maturity. It means that completeness that God wants us to have in our Christian life. He said the fruit of it is for our enjoyment, our endurance, our enlargement, and then we close tonight with the fourth one. Look at the last word. He says, wanting nothing. Now, usually on my outline tonight, our enrichment. Wanting nothing. What a statement. In the Christian life, he said there's a way that you can walk with God that you can, be, you can be thoroughly and perfectly content and satisfied, and you can, on the inside, there'll be no thirst. You'll be, you'll be content. You'll be a fulfilled person. Did you know that's the will of God for every person? I said to a person talking to me the other day, and they're quick, and they was, and they was apprehensive, and, 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 and they was even defensive about their religious faith, and to be honest, they belong to a false cult. And I tried not to be rude, and I asked God to give me wisdom. And the Holy Spirit said, ask this woman. She's a, a woman in her late 20s. said, ask this woman this one question. And I said, would you mind if I ask you just a straightforward question? She said, sure. I said, has your religion fulfilled your life? Are you a fulfilled person? If you'd pardon me, I'd already noticed in her face the emptiness, 
I'd already noticed and listened to her voice and listened to the way she expressed herself that she was not a fulfilled person. She did not possess joy. There was no real contentment. And, 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 and I, wasn't, I wasn't prepared for what I got from her. I, and she, she pondered a minute. She said, do you want me to be honest? She said, I'm bored stiff with my religion. She said in the term she used, it's a drag on me. If a lot of people across this country, and a lot of them's not members of false cults, a lot of them's members of so-called Bible-preaching churches, you know what they'd have to say? My religion is a drag. I'm bored stiff. I'm not a fulfilled person. I'm not filled with joy and contempt. And James is saying that there's a place that God can bring us to that we would be perfect. Now, that keep in mind, the word means complete, mature, and entire, wanting nothing. Why should we tonight? Now, next week, we'll find out what he says we need to do immediately. So don't miss what we're going to be talking about. It's so vital. And really, I thought about just tying the rest because, you see, you know what he starts talking about next? He starts talking about wisdom and tells us how we can have wisdom, not just knowledge. Wisdom. You can acquire knowledge, but wisdom is a gift. And we have to learn how to receive wisdom. You can't acquire it by studying, and I'm for getting all the knowledge we can, but James is saying we need wisdom, especially if you're facing a trial. You need the wisdom of God so you won't waste that experience. You know what a senior saint said one time to a preacher friend? He went in to pray with her. He told us this when he came back. He said, I guess in some ways I experienced the, and, and the presence of God like I have not in my ministry, and he'd been preaching over 30 years. And the lady was in a convalescent home, in a rest home, and been there for a long time. And he said, to be honest, I was praying, Lord, give me wisdom. She's maybe bitter or cynical or critical, and, and he'd understood no one hardly came to see her. And he said, when I went in her presence, I found a saint of God that radiated the presence of God. I found a saint of God in her early 90s that was, was happy and content and so joyful and said she had a Bible with big large print like that and you could see tears stained on all the pages where she'd, she'd prayed and written and said she's a Bible student. And here was her prayer request. She'd, had, she'd been there a long time, but now she's had some added difficulty and adversity and she told the preacher about it. And here's what she said. She said, my prayer request pastor and called his name you ask our heavenly father to give me wisdom so I won't waste this experience said he's letting me go through this so I can learn and so I can use it for his glory that preacher came back in our presence and said I went there to instruct but God used her to be my teacher you're in a hard place tonight would you yield to your father and say, Father, give me wisdom to respond in a way that would please you, in a way where it will enrich my life, and in a way so I can be a testimony and so they can see the grace of God. And you know when our lives preach the loudest sermons to other people is when we're going through difficult times and still walk with him. They begin to say, hey, there's something to the grace of God. Our heads are bowed and eyes are closed.